0: What do you do when people you care about criticize you with a misunderstanding and question your motive? Times like that, you need to be sure about who you are more than ever. If you don't have a secure self-identity and clear purpose of a life, you will fall into self-doubt and sour spirit with much hurt. The good news that Bible tells us is that God created Human beings in his image for his glory. God made us fearfully and wonderfully. Fearfully, he made us with a divine image in us, and wonderfully, he made us with a delightful purpose of our life. That's what we're going to learn from Apostle Paul today. Today is our third study on Paul's second letter to the Corinthian church. And if you remember, Paul was having a hard time with the Corinthian Christians. Last week, we learned a chunk of this long letter. Chapter 2, verse 14 to chapter 7, verse 4 was a digression. And to ancient people, digression was not a distraction, but a delightful, insightful discourse into deeper things. Today in the Second Corinthians, Paul digressed again, into the topic of glory and freedom. Glory and freedom. That's our focus today. What made him into this digression? If you look at the uh, chapter 3, verse 1, Paul said this, Are you beginning to command ourselves again? Okay, this is my hand signal for the, uh, the slide sermon slide. Okay, yes. Chapter One uh, chapter Three verse one. Okay. are we beginning to command ourselves again, or do we need like people letters of a recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter written on our heart, known and read by everyone. You show that we you are you show that you are a letter from Christ. now. When Corinthians were doubting Paul's spiritual authority and the pastoral competence, Paul asked a rhetorical question. Do you need other people's recommendation to trust me? Well, let me tell you something clearly. I don't need uh, any recommendation letter because you are my recommendation letter to yourself. The fact you believe in Jesus Christ is a recommendation for my competence. What is a more convincing recommendation letter than this? And then Paul made a conclusion in verse 6. He, that means God, has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. The letter kills, but the Spirit gives. The letter kills, but Spirit gives. The word letter prompted Paul, to another word association, the spirit. So letter kills, but spirit gives life. This is a Paul's way of implying the great promises of God or prophecies of God that Prophet Jeremiah and Prophet Ischel uh, talked about. So if you look at the uh, Jeremiah chapter 31, this is what Jeremiah said, Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, though I was husband to them, says the Lord, but this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law In their minds and write it on their heart. I'll be their God and they will be my people. And also in Ezekiel chapter 36, Ezekiel said this, I'll take you out from among the nations, gather you out of all countries, bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean. I will clean you from all filthiness and all your idols. I will give you a new heart, put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of the stone out of your flesh and give you heart of flesh. I'll put my spirit within you, cause you to walk in my statues, and you will keep my judgments and do them. Then you shall dwell in the land I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. Now, God's... God's fulfillment of His promises of a new covenant in Jeremiah 31 and Iskiel uh, 36, where God talks about new heart and new spirit and new covenant, that's the background of today's passage. Paul brings the implication of this prophetic fulfillment in his life, especially in his ministry with the Corinthians. So with that, let me read today's text, which is 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 7. Now, if the ministry that brought death, which was engraved in letters on stone, came with glory, so that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of a glory, transitory though it was, will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? If the ministry that brought the condemnation was glorious, how much more glorious is a ministry that brings the righteousness? For what was a glorious has no glory now in comparison with a surpassing glory. And if what was a transitory came with a glory, how much greater is the glory of that which lasts? Therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. We are not like Moses. Could put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from seeing the end of what was a passing away. But their minds were made dull. For this day, the same veil remains when the old covenant was, is read. It has not been removed, only because only in Christ is it taken away. Even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil covers their heart. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is a freedom. And we all, who with unveiled faces contemplated the Lord's glory, are being transformed into His image with the ever-increasing glory which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Amen. Praise the Lord. At first, this passage is so uh, complicated with all the heavy words: covenant, glory, Moses, ministry, boldness, faith, spirit, freedom, transformation. But I want you to remember this: the key word in this in our passage today, chapter three, verse seven to fourteen, is a glory. Glory is our key word. This word with the adjective glorious appears ten times in verse seven to eleven. And twice in the verse 18, so total 12 times, this verse appears in this passage. In other words, today's story begins with the glory and ends with the glory. So, glory is so called inclusio of the text. Those of us uh, are new to the forest, inclusio is our nickname. If you know uh, my preaching, you should know inclusio because inclusio is a very common literary format or pattern in the Bible, pattern in the Bible where the topic or theme of the text was introduced and concluded. They are like a literary bookends of a passage. So anytime you see a passage with a one word, you know one word at the beginning and the same word at the end, you know that's the That's the key word of the whole passage. Now, Paul was comparing Israel's first experience of God's glory through Moses to his own experience of God's glory through Jesus. So today, Paul is telling us why God gave us glory first through Moses, then again through Jesus. And the second question is why. Our glory through Jesus is far superior than any glory in the world, especially the glory through Moses. So, let's first talk about the when and why God showed His glory to Israel and Moses. After God graciously delivered the Israelites from the bondage of Egyptian slavery, God led them to Mount Sinai for them to rest for a while and receive God's law, so that they could flourish in the promised land as God's people. So Moses went to the top of the mountain while people were waiting in the bottom. And God gave Moses two tablets of stone, where God himself wrote the uh, uh, law with his finger, namely the uh, Ten Commandments. Do you remember, anybody remember the, ten, the classical uh, Charlton Heston movie of Ten Commandments? where the, you know, what is that, the uh, lightning comes out and then itches on the stone. Yeah. So cool. Anyway, this, I couldn't, never take out that cool. That is a, such a such an awesome sight. Now, why? Why to tablet? Ancient world, and actually even today's world, when two parties make a covenant or a contract, each party has a copy of their agreement. That's why God gave him two uh, tablets. And then later, in Exodus 25, 21, God told Moses, commanded Moses to store both tablets in the Ark of a Covenant. Now, while Moses was receiving God's law, what was happening in the bottom of the mountain? Israelite, who promised to obey God and keep his law, already became a very impatient and they made a golden calf and returned to their old Egyptian pagan worship. So when Moses witnessed that apostasy or forsaking of a faith on his return, Moses threw the tablet out of his hand and breaking them to the pieces at the foot of the mountain in chapter 32 of Exodus. And after his anger subsided, Moses has got to forgive the sin of Israel for the sake of God's great and gracious name. And God answered Moses' intercession and accepted the atonement for the sin of Israel. But God told Moses in Exodus chapter 33, verse 2, God said this, I'll send an angel before you and he will drive out all the Canaanites and Amorite, Hittite, and everybody in there. Go up to the land flowing with the milk and the honey, but I will not go with you because you are stiff-necked people. I might destroy you on the way. So God said, I can't, you, your, your, your sinfulness, my pop up and then my glory, my, 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 my holiness might kill you because I cannot stand, stand the sin in, in front of me. So upon hearing God's word, Moses replied to God that if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up, uh, uh, up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all other people on the face of the earth? So Moses was saying that, God, I don't want the promised land without you. Your presence That's what makes a promised land. Either go with us or not. And then God told Moses that I will do everything you have asked me because I'm pleased with you and I know you by name. So when God said, okay, I'll go with you. I'll lead you. Then guess what Moses asked God? This is when Moses got, show me your glory. Moses wants a guarantee that God is going with him. So glory was a, is a proof of God's presence in Israel. Now we know the next story. That God told Moses that no one can see his face directly can, and then survive. So God put Moses in the cleft of the rock and then God kind of passed in front of him and Moses saw only back of God. By the way, you want to know the full meaning of that story? Take a Livingstone Bible study and we kind of uh, talk about that. After seeing God's back, Moses got the tablets of stone, the Ten Commandments, for the second time from God and came down from the mountain. And guess what happened? Something happened to Moses' face unknowingly. Exodus chapter 34 29 said his face was radiant because he had spoken with God. And when Aaron and all Israelites saw Moses, his face was radiant and they were afraid to come near him. So from that day on, whenever Moses spoke to Israel, Israelite, he put a veil over his face so that they could not, they could come near him and hear God's word without fear. As they still have a fear, but you know, fear is mitigated through that veil. Now, In one word, God gave Moses his glory as a token of God's presence and the proof of Moses' leadership for Israel. It was God's gracious support and once again comfort to strengthen Moses' ministry. Now, that's what Paul was comparing his ministry with. Just like Moses received the glory from gracious God, Paul said, I also received glory from God. But guess what? Paul was saying, I didn't just receive glory or calling or ministry from God. The glory I received from God is a much better and far superior than that of Moses. That's the crux of a Paul's message in the first part of the today's passages. In verse 7 to 11, the first half, Paul uses so-called argument of a greater, a lesser to greater. You know, lesser to greater. You know, it's like uh, hey, if I can if I can cook this whatever, if I can cook, you know, this noodle this good. Imagine how much better the Jamie will cook, my wife will cook. Those kind of lesser to greater. Now. Here, Paul uses this uh, lesser to greater argument with the three ifs. So if you look at the verse seven, it said, if the ministry that brought the light, uh, brought death, which was engraved in letter came with a glory, will not the ministry of spirit be even more glorious? And verse nine, another if. If the ministry that brought the condemnation was glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings a righteousness? If what was a transitory with a glory? verse 11, how much greater is the glory of that which lasts? So according to Paul, the glory of a new covenant that God gave us in Christ was far superior than that of a Moses that Israel experienced first. Now here we need to understand the meaning of a transitory carefully, because twice in verse seven and 11, Paul mentions a transitory. What does it mean that law or Ten Commandment, and its glory was transitory? We have to understand this carefully. This does not mean the law was no longer good or became bad. Paul never detested or disrespect, disrespected the law. Just like Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish the law but fulfill the law. Law is good. But the problem of the law is that law exposes our sinfulness and guilt without empowering us to obey. So law is limited. It's good but limited. Law exposes, shows our problem. Whereas the spirit solves our problem. Spirit empowers us to obey. That's the difference. So what? Paul meant by law is a transitory, is the law is a limited, and the law's function is a negative, whereas God's spirit and his power is far superior and surpassing that of the law. And here, Paul is using the new covenant, the language of a new covenant we already talked about in the Ezekiel and Jeremiah. And you have to understand there's a new covenant, the word new, not in just another upgrade. It is an ultimate upgrade. It is what uh, scholars call the eschatological fulfillment. There is, this new covenant is an ultimate new relationship with God and that's it. There is no more new after this new. This is a new of a new. And to illustrate this, it's like this. You know, I have an iPhone here. I love, do you love your, your your smartphone, iPhone? I do. I I love, you know. And uh, one, one function I love about iPhone is that it has a flashlight. So don't you use a flashlight? You know, whenever, uh, October, we used to go to retreat. Oh, man, one thing I miss about, you know, this year is that we couldn't go to retreat together and spend the, you know, the beautiful retreat and of, you know, in the pinewood cover, the East Texas in cold weather. And, uh, you know, and then I used, whenever I used to go to retreat, I used to take a, a flashlight. Nowadays, I carry an iPhone. It's very handy. But guess what? No artificial light. Can stand the sunlight. Glory of Moses is like an artificial light. And Christ is a sunlight. And Moses. Paul is saying here is this. Moses is basically reflecting the light, but Jesus is a light himself. Alright? And now, this is what Paul meant by the surpassing glory that Jesus showed to us and the Holy Spirit shining in us. This surpassing glory of Jesus in the Holy Spirit make us greater and far more empowered and enlightened than anybody. And I want us to know that we must duly note that Paul was claiming his superiority over Moses. Let me repeat that. Paul was claiming his superiority over Moses. And we should not underestimate the Paul's claim here because of no Jewish rabbi in Jewish history back then and now and in any time ever claimed this ministry is greater than that of Moses. To Jewish people, Moses has been the absolute leader, teacher, prophet of God that no human religious leaders can ever compete against him preeminence of Moses is a seared in the mind and identity of Jewish people throughout history. For instance, in Paul's time, there was a well-known Jewish philosopher named Philo of Alexandria. And Philo, his, you know, his book explained that while, one thing very important in you know, a historical fact, while the whole world, was converted into Hellenistic culture and philosophy after the Alexander the Great you know, conquered the world, Jewish people still remained in their religious tradition. That is an incredible exception in history. You know, when Alexander Great was not an ordinary conqueror, he conquered the world to bring the peace he actually said his conquest is a conquest of a peace because he will bring a Jewish I mean the Greek philosophy or Sophia, Greek wisdom, and the wisdom, Greek wisdom will enlighten people and people will end fighting with each other. That's why you know he Hellenized everywhere and the whole world. Romans, Greeks, Egyptians, and Persians, everybody, everywhere. They welcome the Greek culture. Except Jewish people. They stubbornly held on to their archaic religious tradition and identity. Why? Philo explained that. You know, Philo's, you know, writing so many places, he said, oh, by the way, Philo was not a very stubborn, conservative, orthodox Jewish rabbi. He is a well-versed philosopher. He knows, he quote um, Plato, Aristotle. All the Greek philosophers, you know, back of his hand. He's a well-versed philosopher and a highly respected philosopher of the time. But guess what Philo said? Philo said, Greek philosophers, all the great ideas about Plato and Aristotle actually came from who? Moses. Somehow these Greek thinkers tapped into the Jewish wisdom and drank some of his truth. And that's why the Greek philosophy was great. Partially. That's what the philo philo said. In another word, you guys have Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle, and Sophia. We have Moses and Torah. We thumb you down. That's how Jewish people regarded Moses. And today, who is claiming he's better than Moses? There's a very struggling Christian rabbi named Paul was saying his ministry is a greater and surpasses that of Moses because God called him to be part of a new covenant ministry in the spirit of Jesus. Do you know in Christ, we have the greatest wisdom and philosophy and truth than no PhDs and Nobel laureates and the all the smart people world can compete against us? You know, when I received Christ into my heart and began to study Bible, I must give my own testimony, and uh, don't take me wrong, I'm not saying this arrogantly, like uh, some religious supersessionist Christian, supersessionists, is those Christian who just uh, say that, you know, Christians are, bad. we are the best, we are the best, kind of, you know, know, uh, arrogantly. I'm not saying like that, but you know, I was a lifelong Buddhist before I became a Christian. Yeah, I was a little precocious pre- child. So since my fifth grader, fifth grade, I was serious about you know, Buddhism. And I went to Buddhist temple studied, so forth, meditated. And my life goal was to become a Buddhist monk at the, at the end of my career. And Buddha has been my uh, teacher of life, role model for uh, truth seeking. Then I met Christ. And study His word, and you know what came through my mind? I said, "Oh my goodness, this is what Buddha was looking for. <laughs> if a Buddha was alive, he will definitely will point us to Jesus, because he was serious about suffering of the world. He tried to people to overcome suffering, but the." He didn't know God. He didn't know Jesus. So He just, you know, gave this very philosophical, in you know, a mystical way, of you know, nirvana, you know, extinguishing the flame of a craving. All this, you know, stuff. But when we know Jesus, you have a power of God in His love to overcome any craving about your flesh. Oh, you know what I wished. I still wish. In God's infinite mercy that Paul talks about in Romans chapter 1 and 2, those you know, those Gentiles who didn't know the God's word or law of God, somehow in their conscience, there is a law, and somehow God still finds them. So I, somehow I, 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 I pray and hope that I will meet Buddha in heaven. But I'm just, it's a wish, okay? Don't quote me on this. I didn't say Buddha went to heaven. I just pray. Because Christ, I found what I've been looking for in Buddhism. So this sounds a very arrogant religious supersessionist. But I have to say, it's not my own discovery. It's a God's revelation with grace and mercy. Now, so let me just to say, it, in Christ, we have the wisdom, we have the truth, we have the life that everyone is looking for and everyone needs. Now, let me look at the uh, second part of our story. So first part, we're talking about excellence of a grace, excellence of, I mean, excellence of a glory, excellence of a glory, glory that we have in Christ. The second part of the story is the effects of the glory. So, verse 12, Paul said, Therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. We need to learn one Greek word today, just one word, okay? That is boldness. In Greek word for boldness, it's a parasia. It's a compound word, it's a pas and resis. Pas is all. Do you, the pantheism actually came from, you know, pantheism means everything is God or God is in everything. That came from the word pass. rasis from which we have an English word rhetoric, it means speech. So together, the boldness means all speeches, all speeches. That means bold person is someone who speaks the truth all the time, confidently and transparently. That's the Greek meaning of a boldness or confidence. Somebody who's speaking truth all the time, transparently. Do you speak all your speeches with equal confidence and transparency to everybody? Don't we speak to different people with different degree of confidence? Don't you speak differently to your manager, to your co and your co-workers? You know, when I speak to my youngest daughter, I speak with a confidence and authority. Because I'm still stronger. I think I'm still stronger and smarter than she. And she hasn't graduated from high school. And she has no high school diploma. I have GED. And uh, uh, by the way, two degrees I'm most grateful to God Is a GED and PhD. Yes, it is possible to have a PhD with a GED, people. That's the greatness of our American education system. Hallelujah. We're living in a truly great country in the world. Now, but when I speak to my wife, I speak with far less confidence and authority. Often I speak with caution and apprehension. I think all husbands in late middle ages understand what I'm talking about. The Bible tells us those uh, husbands in 40s and whatever and father, fear the Lord and your wife and you shall live long, happy life. That's what the Bible says. At least my Bible says. So when I talk to my wife, when I talk to my youngest daughter, I talk differently. And don't judge me on that. You do the same. But when Paul talking about, I, you know, when Paul said, therefore, we, we have, we are very bold because of our surpassing glory of God in the Holy Spirit. Paul is saying, he's speaking everyone confidently. Including when he spoke to making Corinthians so paul he's making connection i'm bold to you i'm actually correcting you but uh, i'm do the same thing to everybody i'm not doing this kind of hard talk to you because uh, you you know you are offending me or i you know i don't like you less. I love everybody, and I speak the truth to everybody in the same intensity. That's what Paul is saying. And the reason he said that, because Paul said, I have glory of Jesus in the Spirit, in me. And now let's look at the verse 13. Paul said, we are not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from seeing the end of what was passing away. I need to apologize on this verse. For my earlier exegesis, those of you who have been attending Daily Breath and heard my short devotions on this passage, I said Moses was covering his face with a veil because the glory of God that he initially received was fading away and he didn't want the Israelites to know that his glory was gone because they were such a disrespectful, stubborn people that once again they found out glory of God was gone from his face, that they will, you know, they will challenge his authority and leadership again. So I said, out of fear, Moses covered his veil, I mean, face with a veil. You know, this week was a very hard week for me because I read so many different exegetical commentaries on the passage. And I finally found, uh, I, I came to the conclusion that my earlier exegesis was wrong. It's uh, painful for me to admit that I'm wrong. But for your sake, I have to say, it's wrong. Because there is no Jewish tradition anywhere that back up the Paul's you know, this interpretation that uh, uh, Moses was afraid of uh, this fading glory. That's not what, you know, so... Whatever that interpretation I gave, it was wrong. So I apologize. And I'm glad that you are here today to hear my correction. What Paul was talking about here is that Paul is saying Moses just reflected God's glory in a very limited way. And whereas Jesus is the radiance God's glory itself. So Moses' glory... Which, which came to support his ministry, ministry through the uh, uh, law, is a limited. It's actually timed. It was supposed to be there. It's supposed to give us a light, and light until the better light, the sunlight, Jesus comes. The better surpassing glory comes, the old glory doesn't need to be there. So that's how he was explaining. Not because Moses was a coward. So, I'm sorry if I gave you that impression, that wrong you know, interpretation. Now, Paul is now going further. He said the Jewish people still resisting the glory of God in Jesus Christ, and rather they are still insisting their old glory, and they still have a veil in their mind. They still read the scripture you know, with a veil and they are they're, they're, they're they're Jewish in a prejudice, and they don't see the true glory of God in Jesus Christ. So, verse 14. But their minds are made dull, for, this, uh, for to this day the same veil remains when all covenant is read, read. It has not been removed, because only in Christ it is taken away. Even today, when Moses is read, that means the Torah, a veil covers their heart, but whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the spirit where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is a freedom. Now, speaking of a veil and removing the veil, I still think there is this passage of a, a false facade that people wear or prejudice people wear, is still in there, in this passage. And I still believe, I still think, there are a lot, this, is, this passage addressed the question of a facade in our times. You know, people wear a facade or mask to cover their true authentic self. Psychologists say that people wear a mask. Two, for several reasons. One, they are not, a, they are not confident about themselves. They don't want others to find about their authentic self because they don't like their authentic self. And the other two is that they want to so impress other people. They want to artificially influence other people. Not authentically, but artificially, influence, you know, uh, impress other people. It's like a propaganda. Now, this week I, I came across an interesting book uh, written by a professor, former professor of uh, religion and culture at the Boston University and the Hofra University in New York. Her name is uh, Donna uh, Freitas, and the book is a happiness effect. Happiness Effect. And uh, this, is, uh, uh, this is what she's saying. She said the uh, sexting, oh, okay, you keep keep that one. I'm gonna read a little more. Sexting, cyberbullying, narcissism, social media has become a dominant force in the young people's lives. And each day seems to bring another shocking tale of private pictures getting into the wrong hands, or lament that young people feel compelled to share their each and every thought with the entire world. Have smartphones and social media created a generation of self-obsessed egomaniacs? Absolutely not. And then, you know, Donna Freyda argues in a book that these alarmist fears are drawing attention away from the real issues. That young people are facing. And what is the real issue, for young people? That's the quote. Because young people feel so pressured to post happy things on social media, most of what everyone sees on social media from their peers are happy things. As a result, they, are, they often feel inferior because they are not actually happy all the time. Students are becoming masters of appearing happy at significant cost. Many students have begun to see what they post on Facebook, especially as a chore or homework assignment to build happy facade. Freighter is basically saying the people are pressured to show that they are happy. They are more than happy. They are blissful. Their life is great. That is a pressures a lot of young people go through. She said that 73% of the college students she surveyed agreed this statement. I try always to be appear positive and happy with anything attached to my real name. And only 19% of the respondents agree with the statement that I'm open about my emotions on social media. So, I didn't realize, but it makes sense, that a lot of young people, especially some of uh, uh, teenagers, adolescents in the suburbia, they have a pressure to be happy. In the sense, I'm also a little bit of a culprit. I I bring up Christian pressure. Hey, Jesus loves you. God loves you without end. Why can't you be happy? And plus, your parents are better than average parents. You know, this kind of thing, kind of uh, pressuring, I didn't realize that my children-to-be, and especially my youngest-to-be, one to be, you should be grateful. You should be happier. You should be you know, happier than when I was in your age kind of you know, pressure. And I, tell, I want to tell, with a sincere apology, I want to tell everybody. We don't want to pressure everybody to Artificially happy. Actually, my prayer is everyone. It's okay not to be happy. You know, I think there is a little bit of a holy pressure that I'm pressure. I'm kind of uh, imposing in our church. I'm sorry if I give you holy pressure during this pandemic. You know, I do out of love, but at the same time, if I'm uh, becoming a little too much. Uh, I'm giving you too much of holy pressure, you know, I'll back off. More than holy pressure, I want, to, I want you to know that honesty is a really, really blessing. And we can be honest with each other. And then we are not here to just, you know, say, give me good praise report, give me good praise report, you, should, you know, encourage me, comfort me. That's not what we are saying. We are saying, Let's really try to remind each other of who God is and who we are. Through our highs and lows, let's remember who God is and who we are. That's what our ministry is about. Let me bring to the uh, concluding verse, verse 18. We all who are unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory and are being transformed into his image with ever increasing glory, which comes from the Lord. Who is a spirit? An IV translation is a very uh, watered down. NASB is much better. NASB said this: We all, with the unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. That is a literal translation. As a, it means, every time you see mirror, what do you see? You see yourself, right? You do, uh, you know, whatever, take a picture, what do you see? You see yourself, mirror. You, you check, you use your camera to see, check yourself, right? Paul is saying this. Every time you see yourself in a mirror, you, see, you should see Jesus in you. You see Jesus is a, Jesus, more Jesus in you. Because that's because the Holy Spirit indwells in us, so ever increasing glory means a glory to glory. And then eventually, one day we will be looked like Jesus. I'm not talking about physically, but our our mindset, our our life look, our way that we look at the world, the way that we feel the world, the way that we interact with everybody. It is through Jesus that we will totally transform by the person of Jesus, that my words, my comments, my, whatever my behavior will be Christ-anointed because of the Holy Spirit in us. And when that's completely done, we call it glorification. When the Spirit of Jesus completely takes it over my body, we're talking about redemption of the body, and glorification in biblical sense. And the last word I want to hear all of us here is this. We are in transforming business, brothers and sisters. Church is all about transforming each other in the glory of Jesus Christ. We are not here to trading some services to each other. We are not here some kind of social club to you scratch my back, I scratch your back. No, we are far more than that. We are into transforming ourselves with the glory of Jesus in the Holy Spirit. Let me quote one of the reasons that the uh, the French Chen left is a mega church they founded in Simi Valley. This is what Francis Chen, you know, uh, a very successful pastor, said. Christian church today may be guilty of slowly becoming so much like the world around it that eventually it could be indistinguishable from it. We can be a consumer-driven church, appealing to the human desire for bigger and better entertainment, for human convenience, and falling into the trap of a shameless competition. They appeal to draw in great number of people, overshadows the emphasis on transforming the people in it. We must live differently from the world. The Christian life should be different on the outside because of our changes are inside. We are in transforming business for us. Our house church, our family, everything we do with a promise and then hope and coming reality. That one day we will be like a Christ. And that is a God's reward. That is ultimate blessing. Let's pray.